If you have your Bibles or whatever other device that you read your Bible on, would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 1? For those who may be visiting with us and haven't been following us, we've been in the book of Philippians for a few weeks. And we're studying this epistle because, well, we want two or three things to happen. First of all, we want the joy that we have in the Lord to be stronger. We believe that one of the major themes of the book of Philippians is the word joy. It's interesting that Paul is writing this from prison, not a place where you'd normally find an instructor talking about joy, but Paul has something that is important for us to learn. We have worked our way down through chapter 1, and we're considering verses 18 through 26. We looked at 18 uh, through 26 in its first part last time. Uh, We looked at verses 18b down through 21. And we're reminded that even though Paul is in prison, he makes it clear that he will not allow his circumstances to rob him of his joy. And in my meditating upon this passage this week again, I was reminded that joy is a choice. It's a choice. It's not a feeling. If a person is not a Christian, they cannot choose joy. They can anesthetize their hearts and minds with things that make them happy, but they only last for a while. True joy comes from God alone, and the renewed heart, the Christian's heart, is the only one that has the capacity to choose joy. Only followers of Christ. And what is joy? I guess if I could narrow it down to one word, I would say it's the word content. I'm just content with God and what he's doing. Perhaps not what I'd like. Even in the most difficult of circumstances, I had a situation this week that really tested my joy. It might sound ridiculous, but I was substitute teaching in a high school walked out of the room, turned the lights off to go do lunch duty, came back. When I came back, somebody stole my phone. I don't know about you, but that unraveled me. But I was, I was pleased that I didn't react so strongly as I normally would. The Lord allowed one of the students to say, well, there was somebody in the corner over here when we walked in and the lights were off and, okay, who was that, blah, blah, blah. So... The office was called, and I did get my phone at the end of the day. How it ended up in a men's room, I have no idea, but honestly, I don't care. But I was talking to myself, saying, okay, you know, you've been preaching about joy in difficult circumstances. This is no way analogous to being in prison. I know that. But there are things about my life that when things are a little off-kilt, they don't go the way I want, I become, a phrase that I often use is unglued. But the Lord allowed me to walk through that and just to keep praying, okay, God, please let me have my phone. I was able to call my wife and stop the service and all that stuff. But it, quote, worked out well. But it was just a reminder that various things happen during the course of a week that are joy stealers if we allow them. I had a choice when I saw the cord still on the, in the, plugged into the wall and the end on the desk and no phone. I had a choice. I could start getting really upset and blaming and screaming and yelling, or I could say, okay, God, I don't like this. Now, that may be a very small, insignificant illustration. To me, it was not, but it was something that I lived through this week and was reminded 
Uh, somebody has said, and I kind of like this, I don't want to be too simplistic, but joy is when you put Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. Take the first letter of those words. And joy is a constant reminder that Christ, remember he said, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Others, where Paul is constantly saying through this letter that others are important, and specifically today, he's going to talk about whatever choice he makes, he's going to make it preferring them above himself, and then, of course, himself. Well, in verses 12 through 18, the first part of verse 18, Paul laid out some reasons for his joy. He said the gospel is advancing. Many people are being born into the family of God, both in the palace, in the praetorium, and outside, other places outside the palace, and Christ is being proclaimed. Some guys are not proclaiming Christ for the right reasons or the right motives, but they're still proclaiming Christ. And Paul rejoices that Jesus' name and his glory is being broadcast. Well, in chapter 1 and verse 18, we call it 18b, the last part, he continues and says, yes... I'm going to keep on rejoicing. And then he gives to us in this next verses four reasons why he's going to keep on rejoicing even though he is locked up in a Roman prison. So Paul, why are you going to keep on rejoicing? Well, first of all, he says, through the prayers of the fellow Christians and his own prayers and the strength and the assistance of the Holy Spirit, Paul is rejoicing that he will be delivered from being ashamed of Christ. When he stands before Caesar to give an account of why he has appealed to him, he's praying that he will be delivered from being a coward as he stands before Caesar. He doesn't want to be someone who kowtows and backs off and doesn't confess Christ in reality. As I thought about this, there's some other characters in the scriptures. You remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You remember that? Those three guys and the courage that they had? You know, King, you can say what you want, throw us in the furnace, we don't care, we're not bound down to your shrine. What, a, what courageous young man. How about Daniel? You know, the edict was brought out, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, you're going to be eaten by the lions. And Daniel, I don't think it records that Daniel had any kind of conversation. He just went home and continued to pray as he had done. And then, of course, in the book of Acts, Peter and John, hey, you do what you got to do. We're going to do what we got to do. We only can speak the things that God wants us to speak. So I think Paul here is in a good line of people who are courageous. And he says, I don't want to be a coward. And those opportunities are given to us today as well, not just young people, but older people. In certain situations, we have an opportunity at times to stand up and to declare that we belong to God. Or we have the opportunity to just be quiet, and our silence sometimes displays our cowardice. More than that, Paul says, he says, whether I live or die, Jesus Christ is everything to me. He is my delight. Both in his life and in his death, he wants to honor Christ. And in both those situations, whether he goes on living or whether his life is taken in martyrdom, he cannot lose. What a great situation. What a great choice. He can't lose. And so he's rejoicing because of that as well. He's going to continue to rejoice. Now, in verses 22 through 26, and I'd like to read those, he gives to us two more reasons for his continued rejoicing. I've given them the words dilemma and disclosure. Look at that, if you would, with me. Beginning in verse 22, Paul says these words. If I am to live in the flesh, 
that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My personal desire is to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Perhaps in the Greek it could be translated much more better. But to remain in the flesh, that is to stay alive, is more necessary on your account or for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Interesting words Paul's giving to us here. He has, first of all, in these first three verses, 22, 3, and 4, what I am calling a dilemma. I've been reading extensively Philip Johnson's commentary on Philippians as well as others. And I like what he says on these verses. Let me share some thoughts with you, if I may. Because Paul is joined to Christ, and that's what defines who he is, he can assess the alternative outcomes, either life or death, Listen, not as competing evils, but as competing goods. That's a powerful statement. These are not one's good and one's evil. They're not competing against each other in that sense. They're both good. They're both profitable and beneficial to him. If it is God's plan for him to honor Christ through his ongoing life, to continue to live in the flesh, he said, that's going to be fruitful labor. I can keep on serving the Lord and fruit will come from my labors. This fruitful labor that Paul envisions is not for his own advantage. He is willing to continue living even under the worst of circumstances for their advantage, for their account. When Paul uses the word fruit, he's talking about things that will come to pass in the lives of fellow believers. When the Holy Spirit mercifully and mightily brings home to them the good news of Jesus and what it means to follow Him. Paul prays in chapter 1 and verse 11, and we looked at it, that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. He rejoices in their generosity in chapter 4 for the fruit that increases to your credit. Years before he even came to Rome, Paul wanted to reach the imperial city, quote, in order that I may reap fruit among you. Paul is concerned that fruit will come in their lives. And he's willing, if it means for him to go on and keep living and work for them, instead of going home to be with the Lord like he really wants to, it will be a blessing to them, it will enrich their lives, and fruit will come. However... On the other hand, personally, if Paul got his, I don't know if you've ever heard this word, my father used to use it, his druthers. No, I'd rather have this. Okay, if he got his druthers, death is even more attractive. It would be gain. Not because Paul finds his current circumstances intolerable, nor because it offers a quick escape from the threats that's looming on the horizon. The one thing that makes a speedy death better is he will finally be with Christ. Him whom he is only known by faith, he will see. As John tells us in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, we shall see him as he is. So Paul's saying, here are these two options, the competing goods. One of them is I can stay on and keep living. And if I do, God will use me. We will labor together. The gospel will continue to advance. You will grow. People will be converted. People will be discipled. Churches will be planted. And God's name will be honored. 
However, if I have my druthers, if I could have what I really want, I'd like to leave, not because I'm sick and tired of life, not because I want to check out of here, but I want to go home and be with the Lord. Have you ever heard people say that? Just recently, Bill Ziegler, who passed away about four or five weeks ago, I visited him in a hospital rehab home over in Carlisle. And Bill has said this before, but he said it was so much, so much meaning. He said, Pastor Ed, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. I, I want to go be with Jesus. And it wasn't, but a couple of days later, God took him home. Paul uses the words here, hard-pressed. Those are powerful words. It's a, it's a vice grip, not made out of metal, but made out of soft material, kind of pressing against him. Not crushing him to death, but he's feeling the pressure of these things. Either one of the options is beneficial. Again, he can't lose. He says in verse 22 and 24, if he's allowed to be released and go on living, then there's going to be fruitful labor. His labors and the gospel will produce fruit in the lives of others. Can I remind us this morning that one of the main purposes, not the main purpose, the main purpose for us to be here today is to lift up the name of Christ and to worship God in spirit and in truth. That's, that's numero uno. That's the ultimate. But one of the penultimates of that is we are here today to stir one another up to love and good works. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It's not all about me. It's about us. And before we go home today, will yes, we will have the opportunity. I can tell you that. We have the opportunity because we're in the same building. The question is, will I take advantage of that opportunity in someone's life here to stir them to provoke them, to push them to love. The love of Christ, the love of His Word, the love of His church. Will I push them to love and good works or good deeds? That's what Paul is saying here. If I keep on living, I want to be a prod in your lives to push you forward, to love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. We... We have to avoid this individualistic mindset in the world in which we live that has crept into the church. It's not about me, it's about us. And Paul is saying, if I'm going to go on living, then I want that to continue to happen. I want to prod you to good deeds. I want the fruit of the Spirit to be manifested in your life. I want you and me together to work for the conversion of sinners and when God saves them and brings them into his family, I want to be involved with you in discipling them and helping them to grow and teaching them and modeling Christ before them. I want to be a servant of God and a servant of people. I wonder how many times I have gone to church throughout my life, both as a minister and just being in the church, that I walked into the building where we were worshiping with that mindset. And when I left the church building that morning, could I say, that was a great service. And if I said it was a great service, why? Because the music was great, the sermon was great, the fellowship was great, the coffee and cookies were great. 
Or could I say, you know what? I had an opportunity today to talk to a brother or sister so-and-so say, hey, how, how things going in your life? And they shared with me and we just encouraged one another. We took a moment to pray for each other. And I had the opportunity to push them to be more like Jesus, to push them to be faithful in their walk with the Lord. Can, can you imagine if that were more of a mindset that I had when I walked into the church building in whatever capacity? What a change that would be among people. We are here for each other. We are here to glorify God. Come, let us exalt the Lord. Let us magnify his name together and let us be used in the lives of each other to do that. That's what Paul is saying here. If he gets to keep on living, okay. I'm not going to stop doing what I'm doing. And in order to do that, obviously, in person, he's going to have to be released. And so that's what's going to have to happen if it happens. But he says, moreover, equally appealing, actually far better for me if I got what I wanted, would be to depart from this life and go home to be with the Lord. The attraction here is to be with and to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Several years ago, Dr. Phillips was his name. He was a doctor in Camp Hill. He was in my church. And Doc Phillips died. Great, great guy. And at his funeral, his granddaughter sang a song that I had never heard before. And I think that song captures here the heart of Paul as he's thinking about departing and to be with Christ. Maybe you've heard this song. I won't scare you and sing it for you, but I'll read the words to you. The name of the song is Finally Home. When engulfed by the terror of the tempestuous sea, unknown waves before you roll, at the end of doubt and peril is eternity, though fear and conflict seize your soul. But just think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven, of touching a hand and finding it God's, of breathing new air and finding it celestial, of waking up in glory and finding it home. When surrounded by the blackness of the darkest night, oh, how lonely death can be. At the end of this long tunnel is a shining light, for death is swallowed up in victory. But just think, stepping on shore and finding it heaven, of touching a hand and finding it God's, of breathing new air and finding it celestial, of waking up in glory and finding it home. That's what Paul is longing for. But he's willing to forego that for the sake of these brothers who needed him for a longer period of time. If you have an outline with you, something that I sometimes do is just pause here and reflect with me for just a moment. These, these are questions that I ask myself as I'm studying through a passage of Scripture. And so it's kind of like my own thinking put on paper. Number one, if I were given the choice between these two things that Paul has, which one would I choose? Ongoing life or imminent death. I'm not talking about times when people get so depressed they want to take their lives. I'm not talking about that. That's a reality. But as a Christian, if I had the chance to keep living and be a blessing to others or go home to be with the Lord, which one would I choose? That's a good question. I, I can't answer that for you. In the Western world, the world in which we live, maybe we would choose life because even though it has lots of struggles and difficulties, hey, Overall, it's pretty comfortable and pleasurable, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Despite whatever we may not have that we would like to have, it's still pretty okay. 
or maybe death. Maybe life is so hard that we would choose that. I don't know. Probably we will never be given the option like Paul to make that choice in that way. However, one thing that I can do, and I borrow this phrase from someone else, is I can live until I really live. Because death is the entrance into the presence of God where life will never end. I can do that. One of the things that impresses me so much about this, and God continually brings me back to this, is that in this section, one of the things about Paul's dilemma that keeps him focused is his selflessness. I struggle with being selfish. I don't know about you. I don't mind doing some things, but the back burner question is, yeah, but what am I going to get out of it? How's it going to benefit me? If Paul can have his way, he's going to go to heaven. The far better choice. But notice the words he uses, the more necessary. That's how I should live my life. What is necessary for the glory of God and the good of his people? Do we realize that's really what's behind those who are martyred for the sake of Christ when they give their lives? They have chosen the necessary thing to stand up for Christ and the gospel and are willing to do that for the body of Christ and for the good of his people. And so Paul says in verse 24, I'm doing this on your account. And I wrote here for my own sake, what about me? What about you this morning, my friend? Do I live my life for others? When we get chapter 2, Paul's going to really hit that hard because this, this group of believers had some real problems with self-centeredness and lack of unity. And he, he starts right out in chapter 2. If there's this, if there's this, if there's this, have the same mind one with another. And if you need an example of how to live for others, verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was God, didn't take that as something to grab a hold of and use to his advantage, but rather he humbled himself, he served others, he gave himself to the point of death, even to the death of a cross. Paul's going to give us that illustration. But I think his illustration comes out of his own life. An illustration that's only an illustration can benefit but an illustration that comes from my life that I use to benefit others can be such much more powerful. So the question I ask myself, do I have a servant's heart? Remember what Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 and 13? He says in verse 1, stand fast in your freedom. Jesus Christ has set you free. Hallelujah. We love that word freedom, don't we? It's a great thing. We're, we live in a free country, so to speak, other than other countries where you, you don't have those freedoms. But he fast forward down to verse 13. He says, yes, you've been set free, but don't use your freedom for your own sake, but by love, use your freedom to do what? Remember? I ain't let you off the hook. Go back to Galatians chapter 5 with me, will you? Look at chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 13. Notice what Paul says about our freedom. Galatians 5, this is a new Bible to me, so I've got to do it this way. Verse 13, he says, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, that is for yourself, but through love serve one another. We've been set free. 
A servant's heart is manifested by serving others and not myself. I wrote one other thing here under this section. Actually, as Christians, every day we do have a, quote, life or death decision to make. You know that, don't you? Paul says in Romans chapter 6, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God through Jesus Christ. So there is that life and death dimension in my walk every day as I say no to sin and yes to God in Christ Jesus. So a third reason here for Paul and his continuing joy is he has a wonderful dilemma. Johnson used this phrase, an uncomfortable tension. I like that. It's a tension, it's uncomfortable, but it's real. And so whichever one it happens, it doesn't matter to him. Well, he gives to us a fourth reason why he's going to continue to be joyful in verses 25 through 26. Philippians 1, verses 25 and 26. Notice what he says. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue. Wait a minute, Paul. Come on, wait a minute. I got to stop there. I thought you got this dilemma. You're not sure what's going to happen. So he starts out in verse 25, convinced. Now that word convinced is, I'm certain of this. I'm absolutely sure of this. Back in chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, I'm absolutely sure that the same God who started in this me, this in me is going to finish it. So Paul, which is it? I'm going to share that with you in just a moment. I wish I could give you a definitive answer, but I'm going to suggest something to us this morning that I think the Lord is showing me. It might be helpful to you as well. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. (sighs) Paul here is, and I use the word disclosure, he's revealing something in his heart that's going on that God is doing in him and for him. What was he convinced of and what did he know? K-N-O-W. Knows for sure that word there is used. Well, two things. He's going to remain with them a little while longer for their progress and their joy. He's going to help improve their strong points. He's going to help shore up their weak points. He's going to be involved in the unity that they need to have. He's going to help expose false teachers who are trying to undermine the gospel. And he's going to instruct them on the subject of worry. In chapter 4, he deals with the subject of worry. He's going to be around to help them in those areas because they need help. And the goal of that is joyful progress. But more than that, he says he's going to come to them. Now, in order to come to them, he's got to be released from prison. I know that I'm going to come to you and together we're going to glory and boast in Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I'm scratching my head as I'm studying this. Now, wait a minute, Paul. What are you talking about? Well, let me share something with you that I believe is true. I I can't take this to the bank. It's not inspired by the Spirit of God. I would just suggest it to you from my experience. Paul got his confidence of these two things through his prayer and their prayer together, and the strengthening and ministry of the Holy Spirit in their prayer lives. I'll give you an illustration. Have you ever heard of a gentleman named Reese Howell? There's a book I read many years ago called Reese Howell Intercessor. It seems that Reese Howell and a group of people during the Second World War 
started to get together on a regular, maybe I think it might have been a daily basis, to pray for God to have mercy upon the Allies. Hitler was making advances. Things were looking bleak. In that prayer meeting, I'm not talking about some some weird vision thing, but these men and or women who got together and prayed so fervently and so faithfully were convinced that God was going to do something, even to the point, I understand, that they wrote a letter to Winston Churchill and said, Mr. Churchill, Hitler is not going to cross the English Channel. He's going north and it's going to be his destruction before it happened. I got to tell you, this deals with a dimension of prayer that I'm not very familiar with. But I'd like to be. As I look at the panorama of the professed Christian church in America, perhaps one thing will be written over the last 50 or 60 years behold, how they did not pray. I've watched it. Churches have canceled prayer meetings. Those who have it, very, very few come. Other churches have replaced the prayer meeting with other activities and have not set another side of time for prayer. Even a cursory view of the book of Acts will teach us one thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the advance of missionary work, came in the school of prayer. Every major advance came from a prayer meeting. And if you read church history, and you ought to, I know some of them are really hard and very detailed, but one thing you'll see written across all of this, that when God is going to do something, he does it in answer to the prayers of his people. I believe it is possible for a Christian or a group of Christians to be so fervent and so passionate in prayer that at times they can confidently say, quote, we believe God is going to do this. God speaks clearly to them and reveals what he's going to do. I believe that. I've not experienced that, probably not to that degree at all in my Christian life, to my shame. What I want you to do, if you have your Bible, please get a Bible or something. Look at these verses with me, please. I want to show you something. I know how easily these verses can be dismissed theologically, but I just want to look at them on the surface of what they say. And I'd like you to wrestle with them as I'm still wrestling with them because these are all the the words of God. And if they're the words of God, then they're for me today. And there's something in them that I can learn and practice. First of all, Matthew 21 and verse 22. And I think, did I not list these on the uh, outline? Did I? Okay. So you can look. let Let me read them to you. There they are. Listen, there's a couple of words that keep jumping out again. Whatever and anything. 
Oh, that, that can't mean that. Now, I'm not talking about a blank check where God says, here, here's a pen, whatever you want. Just, just ask for it. Anything you want, just ask me. Well, we know there's some clarifying statements, but in my experience, I spend more time on the clarifying statements than on the simple truth of what God says. And I wonder if a group of Christian people in their personal lives and their small group lives and in their congregational lives would just say, okay, God, if this is in your word, would you teach us what it means? We're going to get on our face before you and we're not going to stop doing this. And We're not asking you to do something miraculously or supernaturally, whatever. We just want you to bring to pass in our lives as a people what these mean. Can you show it to us? Listen to these verses, Matthew 21, 22. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Ah, see, we theological thinkers say, well, it's because you don't have enough faith. That's the problem. Is that what it says? Next verse, John 14, 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 15, 16. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. John 16, 23 and 24, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've not asked anything in my name. Ask and you will receive that your, here's that word from Philippians, that your joy may be full. 1 John 3, 21 and 22, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have, there's the word he's used in Philippians, confidence before God. And here it is again. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Finally, in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 5 of 1 John, and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know, that's the same word he used in Philippians, that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the request that we've asked of him. All I'm doing this morning, perhaps, is just confessing that I can read them. I don't fully understand them. But there is a dimension of prayer that I read about in my books on prayer, E.M. Bounds and others who've written good books on prayer, those who've gotten into the throne room of God and know God in a way that I don't. My point is this. Is there something resonating in your heart that says, I want to know what this means? Could this ever happen in living legacy? I'm not asking to get out the tea leaves and the crystal ball and read the future and God's going to... I'm not asking that. But there is a confidence. There's a spiritual assurance that I believe God will give to his people if they persevere in prayer before him. Remember in chapter 2, we talked about this earlier in the series. What was it they devoted themselves to? Continuously, steadfastly devoted themselves to. Apostles' doctrine. 
breaking of bread, fellowship, that was chapter 1, and what was the last word there? Prayer. And if your translation doesn't say prayers or prayer meetings, it doesn't translate it correctly. They devoted themselves to getting together as a group of people and crying out unto God, and God answered those things continuously through the book of Acts. Church was birthed, the church extended, missionary work was begun, and the gospel advanced. And I have some friends who say, well, the book of Acts is just a book of transition. It's not for us today. Would you please show that to me? I'm just trying to be very honest with you this morning. I think it's too easy to dismiss these things rather than say, God, help us to wrestle with these and understand what you're trying to say to us. I think when a people devote themselves continually steadfast in prayer, like the early church, God can and often does do what he did for Paul here. And I suggest to you again this morning as Living Legacy goes to this time of transition, what a great habit to put into place where the congregation gets together and cries out unto God, worship, praise, singing, testimonies, fellowship, and fervent request for God's glory. Well, um, Paul is a man who's filled with great joy in spite of his circumstances. He knows some things. He's going to be delivered from being a coward. He's going to continue to delight and find Jesus the most important thing in his life. He's got this dilemma going on, but it's really a good dilemma. And he's opened his heart and shared with us something that he knows is going to happen. Paul knows it's going to happen. Paul, how do you know? Because God spoke to me in my heart from his word. He he showed that to me. Whatever that means, I'm not sure. We are so quick to to dismiss the whole charismatic movement and what God can be doing in some of that that we just missed. Perhaps, perhaps, I'm just suggesting, I will never forget my very first church in Litchfield, Michigan. We came to a prayer meeting on a Wednesday night and Jeanette Brandt said, Pastor Ed, I got a question for you. What? How come those people that got all the joy ain't got the truth? And how come we who have all the, all the truth don't have any joy? I know what she was referring to. That question bothered me because I didn't have the courage to ask it that way. Let me conclude. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I plead with you to trust in Jesus Christ. Joy, purpose in life, assurance, and a home in heaven forever is all hinging upon one thing. John says in 1 John chapter 5, if you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, whatever else you may have, you don't have eternal life. And so I implore you today, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't have the assurance that if you died today, and those 17 kids that went to Lakeland, Florida, went to school, 
not realizing that before the end of the day, they would be in eternity. So none of us have the assurance that we'll make it till tomorrow. If you stood before God, do you know that your sins are forgiven, that he is your God, Jesus is your Savior, the Spirit of God lives inside of you, you have a new heart, a new purpose, and a new desire to live for him? If you don't, please, I beg you, in the name of Christ Jesus the Lord, trust in him today. Don't leave this building before you come up, at least to me, or so, say, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Can you, can you really know that you're saved? Can you know that you're going to heaven? And I'm going to answer, yes. Well, how can you know? And then I'm going to take you right to the Scriptures. And I'm going to drive you to Jesus and ask you to cry out unto Him. And the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It'll happen. So I ask you to do that. Brothers and sisters, one more reminder. Joy is the caboose and not the engine. The engine is for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Joy comes from that. It flows from that. When my life is focused and centered upon honoring Jesus every day as best I can in every situation, joy will come. But if I'm living for the moment and for the joy and the excitement of life, I'm going to miss it all, even as a Christian. The Bible says that one of these days, according to 2 Corinthians in the book of Romans, that when we stand before God, if we're Christians, our salvation is taken care of. We know that. Amen. But I wonder if we're going to lose any rewards because we've not been faithful to make Christ the center of our life. Now, I think on the back of your bulletin is a prayer. I have in my library something that I treasure. It's called the Valley of Vision. It is devotions and prayers of the Puritans. And you'll see on there a prayer. Now, it's kind of old English. The Puritans get a bad rap. <laughs> By the way, don't you, think, don't you ever think that the Puritans didn't laugh and have a good time? They could party hardy as, any, as well as anybody else. They get a bad rap because... The Puritans, oh, all they care about is being pure and holy, and they just have run around with a sad look on their face and never laughed. Or, don't you think that for a moment? But they were serious about their walk with God. They were serious about what was important to be serious about. And I want to read this, and I'm going to try to use modern words in the places of thee and thou and stuff like that. But I think that this, at least for me, is an excellent prayer to return to often and let this be the desire of my heart. I don't know about you, but I like praying prayers that have been written. The book of Psalms and other prayers. If, if, it's the, if it's the desire of my heart, I don't care who wrote it. I can read it and benefit from it. So look at this. Sovereign God. Woo, that's a great place to start. You're on the throne and I ain't. You're God and I ain't. Okay, Sovereign God. Your cause and not mine engages my heart. And I appeal to you with great freedom to set up your kingdom everywhere where Satan reigns. Glorify yourself and I will rejoice for to bring honor to your name is my, look at that next word, soul desire. You be glorified in everything I do. I adore you that you are God. Rachel, you are beautiful. 
I adore you because you are God. And I long, I desire that others would know it and feel it and rejoice in it as well. Oh, that all men might love and praise you, that you might have all the glory from this intelligent world. Oh, let sinners be brought to you for your dear name. To the eye of reason, everything respecting conversion of others is as dark as midnight. That is, we don't know who's going to be saved. We announce the gospel, but we don't know if they're going to come to know Jesus. It's dark to us, but you can accomplish great things. The cause, that's the name of this prayer up top, the cause. The whole thing is yours, and it's to your glory that men will be saved. Psalm 106 and verse 8, nevertheless, he saved them for his namesake. Lord, use me as you will. What a great way to live. Whatever you want, God, wherever you want, just use me. That's all I want. Put me in uncomfortable situations where my faith is stretched. Put me in places where it's dark and scary that you will be glorified. Do with me what you want, but promote your cause. Let your kingdom come. Let your blessed interest be advanced in this world. Do you see the mind of Paul here where he's concerned about their lives and their spiritual growth more than his own? Oh, bring in great numbers to Jesus. Oh, that many would come to know you as Lord and Savior. Let me see that glorious day. Let me live to see it and give me to grasp for multitudes of souls. Let me be willing to die to that end. And while I live, let me work real hard. That's the word labor for you. To the utmost of my strength, spending time profitably in this work, both in health and in weakness. It is your cause and your kingdom that I long for, not my own. Please, God, answer that prayer. If a little tiny group of people in Hershey, Pennsylvania called Living Legacy would individually begin to pray that and then regularly get together and begin to pray the focus of that prayer, I don't know what will happen. And we don't pray a prayer like that so that we can get something magnificent and wonderful and our name to be known and we can get all these rewards from it. This is not the prayer of Jabez in 21st century. I I encourage you to join me. Let this be a regular part of our prayer life. I don't know where you pray at home or how you have your devotions and stuff set up, but put it right there somewhere where you can see it. And as often as the Lord allows us, just pray it. Just pray it. Lord, let it happen. Please let it happen. That you will be glorified. Your cause will extend. Others will come to know you. And the name of Christ will be broadcast both here and to the farthest corners of the earth. Amen? Amen.